Soon after getting out of theater school, I got a job as an equity apprentice on an outdoor production of Macbeth that starred Richard Manette. Richard Manette, who's Henry V at the Stratford Festival, had an enormous effect on me as a student. Richard Manette, whose performance in Michel Tremblay's Hosanna so stunned English Canada, it almost loosened our obsessive grip on naturalism. Richard Manette, who screamed You Pigs at the Stratford Festival Board of Directors at a public meeting. Richard Manette, who eventually became artistic director of the Stratford Festival. I watched Richard very closely in rehearsal. Very, very closely, which could not have been easy for him. And indeed, he was in no way generous with me or even particularly friendly. What I didn't know was that Richard's love of acting was in the process of being overwhelmed by his fear of acting. I would arrive an hour and a half before the show to do my theater school warm up in preparation to play an array of silent characters. Richard stayed as far away from the company as possible prior to the show. Some nights we wouldn't even see him at all before his entrance. One night I saw him 10 minutes before the curtain. He was sitting on the hillside in the audience in his costume. He had his friends there to see the show and I, I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. The show began and he remained on the hillside. And then halfway through the witch's scene, he rose, he walked in a wide arc around the audience into the dark, and then he emerged backstage. And without pausing, he put on his sword and he made his first entrance. And then he gave a performance no better or worse than he had given any other night. I didn't, as a young actor, know what to think. Was he lazy? Did he not care? Or was he somehow the consummate craftsman? I didn't know what to think because I didn't know what he was up against. That production of Macbeth would be the last time Richard Manette would step on stage as an actor. Hi, I'm Michael Healy. This is Just One More. Today, stories of meeting your heroes. What happens when you're finally up close to someone that you've admired from afar? Hi, uh, my name is Eric McCormack, and um, some 40 years ago, I lived with the host of this program. I don't know that he tells people that very often, but I brag about it to strangers in the street. It's always fun to say, you know Michael Healy, my, my college roommate, and they go, huh? Um, because of David Furnish uh, in, in my high school, I've, I've gotten to know Elton John over the years, and I got to do a deep cut moment with him, which is my favorite story I tell, which is that they came to our house. This is 20 years ago. My, my son was just a baby, and, and we had a piano, and, and uh, it was new, and Elton volunteered to christen it. He sat down at the piano, and I've only met him once or twice at this point, and so... I wanted one for he said he looked up at me and he said, What would you like me to play? And I'm thinking, okay, this is the moment of truth. What I say matters here. I can't just say Rocket Man like some schmuck. So I said, 
I've seen that movie too, from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And he looked up at me and said, Oh, fuck off, I don't remember that song. So the deep cuts don't always go well. (laughs) Sometimes you go so deep (laughs) that Elton John tells you to fuck off. So how do you want this set up? Uh, I would like you to begin, please, by introducing yourself, if you would, Ted Dykstra. Hello, I'm Ted Dykstra. <laughs> you don't have to say hello, <laughs> but I love that you do. Uh, Ted Dykstra is, um, he's an actor and a director and a writer. Uh, and he is the co, because I'm doing this for you because you wouldn't do it. He's the co-artistic director. You never asked me. I would have been happy to say those things. I didn't quite know. Keep going. Yes, I'm the co-founder and artistic director of the Coal Mine Theater with my wife, Diana Bentley. Yes. And you originally uh, contacted me because you had a story about a hero of yours. Mm, Yeah. Martha Henry, who, um, as I'm sure many people who listen to this uh, know, passed away this year. She was an idol of mine my my whole life from the time I was a young actor. And um, I'd never worked with her, but I had met her many times and spoken to her many times and always felt that she spoke to me with genuine curiosity, that she really wanted to know about me more more so than anyone else who, you know, because I was a nobody, so why would she? But she was always like that. She was like that her whole life with me and I've subsequently found out that's a thing special to her is that she listened, she looked at you, she was keen, she was smart, she was funny. And it it just so happened that uh, she came to our theater to be in Marjorie Prime, she was 80 or 81. um, And uh, this was two years ago, it was the last show we did before uh, COVID hit. Uh I made it my mission to take care of her anything that she needed. I wanted to make sure that because I thought it was so incredible that she was coming from her life and comfort in Stratford to stay in a a hotel in Toronto and and drive to work every day in her big car in the winter. And uh, she, she, I don't think she knew that it was cancerous yet, but she was having pains in her leg, uh, difficulty walking a little bit. And so she was a bit fragile, but tough as nails and, and super fun. And and she would drive to the show on, on the Danforth uh, every day and to rehearsal every day. And I had a plan with Bo Dixon, who's a friend and, and has worked with Coal Mine and, uh, and you know, has the same reverence for Martha that I do, as, as everyone did. Um, and I said, Bo, you know, it's February. This is an 80-year-old woman. She's having a little bit of trouble walking. It's icy. Sometimes you can't park near the theater. It's going to be a block or two away. And I don't want her walking two blocks in the icy cold to, to get to the theater. You know, so I said, here's the plan. She drives up to the theater. You walk her into the theater. And if she can't get a spot, you take her car and park it a couple of blocks away. And after the show, you can go get it. Right? He said, no problem. I'd love to do that. So we were sorted. And, and I, I thought, good. And Martha knew about the plan. And she didn't really say anything about it. Uh, I thought, okay, it must be okay with her. She must actually need the help. And then after they opened, 
uh, because the theater's not far away, one of the great things I get to do is just pop by the theater after a show some nights and go out for people yeah. the way you want to with this show, right? Uh, and, and hang out and, and say hello and uh, watch them drink. I don't drink anymore. So I met them and we're in the restaurant next door and I said, uh, I sat right next to her and I was so happy when I was in her presence. I go, Martha, I gotta ask you, how the, how's the parking going? Because I haven't heard any stories. Bo hasn't said anything, you know, uh, he was gonna do She goes, yes, um, well, as it turns out, I don't really ever need help with parking. And I said, oh, she goes, no, I've, I've had a spot every night right in front of the theater. Um, and uh, it's really not a problem. I didn't really tell you this, but uh, I have a friend, Ed, and Ed makes sure that the the parking is there for me, that there's a spot for me by the theater. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? Ed, and I thought, who could this person be that I don't know about? He doesn't work for the coal mine. Maybe someone with some clout down at Cambridge Suites who can clear a parking spot on the Danforth. I said, does he work at the hotel? She goes, no, no, no. And I said, does he live nearby the theater? Thinking that maybe he came there with orange cones and, and saved her a spot. She said, no, 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 um, Ed's not living. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and no, no smile in her at all. Just very matter of fact, well, no, no, he's dead. Ed's, Ed's not living, Ed's not with us. And I said, who was Ed? And she said, well, he was my mother's driver many years ago. And I wanted to get into the whole, okay, so you come from a, some family in Detroit that has a driver, but I didn't. Um, I just took it at face value. I said, oh, your mother's driver. And he makes sure that there's parking for you. She goes, yes, he's done this for me for for 30 years, however many years, a, long, a num big number of years. And, and she said, it works like this. She said, I can't ask him just as I'm rounding the corner to my parking spot. I, I can't do that. That's not fair. Before I leave the hotel or wherever I am in the world, before I leave, I have to take a moment and go, Ed, I'm going to such and such a place. It's going to take me this long. When I get there, I need a parking spot. And it's never failed me. And I, I was like I am right now, just going, oh my God. And indeed, I then said to everyone else, and she had a spot every night and everyone goes, yeah, she's always right outside the theater. So I think about this for a while. A little while later I turn to her and go, I'm very intrigued by this, Martha. And I have a question. Do you think Ed would help me raise money for the theater? And she just like point blank, no pause, no, she said, no. And so why? And, and, and she said, it doesn't work like that. And I said, well, how does it work? How does it work, Martha? And she goes, it has to be someone that you know, that you love, and it has to be a task that they would just be great at and love to do. And so I thought, and my dad passed away about 10 years ago. He was always talking about his books. And when I was a kid, he'd show me how checkbooks work and he got me a paper route, and taught me how to do the accounting and everything. I thought, I bet my dad would really really like this. So I took a moment in the next day or two uh, and I I sat and I for real dropped all the joking and everything. And I said, Dad, 
you know, if you can help me raise money for this theater, it would make me so happy. And I, not because of the money in the theater, but just to know that I'd know it was you. I'd, I'd know. And I'll tell you, Michael, we've never had so many donations in all the years we've been open. It's it's been the the biggest by far increase of donations that we've ever had. A gentleman passed away and left us a hundred thousand dollars. The Wall of Fame is is like four times as many names as what what it was. You'll see when you come in, and that's my dad. I'm telling you, and you know. It only, it, it, what makes it true is if you believe it. And, and I believe it, and so it is true. And, and he's listening right now. I, I'm not poo-pooing any of this stuff anymore because honest to God, it's been proven. And Martha, on closing night of the Marjorie Prime, we were in the dressing room downstairs. She loved to have a glass of wine. She finally gets up and Bo's gonna help her up the stairs, the very steep stairs, and out to her car. And uh, she you know, hugs and kisses and everything else. She gives me a little envelope. Just open this one, I'm gone. And uh, I open the envelope and she's gone and there's a check for $5,000. And then I got to see her last performance uh, in the Albi at Stratford. Um, we felt so lucky and I communicated with her by email because it was COVID I didn't want to get anywhere near her and I knew that the cancer was all through her by then and she wrote back right away within you know 45 minutes and just said had such a wonderful time at your theater you and Diana are so wonderful it was one of the greatest experiences of my career so I'm never going to stop talking about it basically you to just introduce yourself. Yes, of course. My name is Alan Dilworth. I'm a theater director. I write sometimes. I used to act. I'm the artistic director of Necessary Angel Theater Company. I was thinking about one of my greatest heroes, Edward Bond. I met him in the summer of 2008. I met him at his home. I had heard about him for a long time. I had never seen one of his plays. And then I read Lear, his plays. Lear. Whoa. It kind of knocked me over. But at the same time, I had this strange feeling, which I had had in a way in the theater, but not quite as strong as this. And that was that I felt less lonely when I read that, like, horrific play. so interesting that that's your response to that play. Right? (laughs) Because it is a horrific play. That's amazing. Explain what you mean. I just, I mean that I felt, I felt that there were, the scope of humanity in it. Uh-huh. I felt like someone saying something that I agree, like I so heartily agree or feel at times. And it's something about how bold and brazen he was. He had a vantage point where he had nothing to lose to say right. it like it was for himself. And I found so much truth in it. And it Amazing. scared me, but it also, yeah, it felt really wow, I felt seen in a strange way. So then I, you know, I was, I was doing an MFA in directing at York University at the time. 
And I was looking for pieces to work on or like a playwright, just I was digging into bodies of work. And then um, I, Mev and I were going to, we were in England and in France that summer. And I arranged to, at, at the kind of at the, um, in, uh, being encouraged by David Jansen and Ross Manson, who had been fans of Bond mm -hmm. and also had kind of had some contact with him and said, you got to reach out. He's the best. He'll just totally connect with you. And so I hopped on a train from London to Cambridge and then his wife picked me up at the train station and we drove out into the country to his basically like their compound. It reminds me a bit of like children of men, you know, where they oh, go yeah. and see Michael Caine in the woods. Yes. It's like that. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> yeah. It was wild in this gorgeous old, old cabin with like still the stone walls, like the fixed yeah. stone walls, like damp, 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 even in the summer. And his wife's picked me up at the station. So sweet. We get there. She takes me into the cottage. She sits me kind of in their kitchen. And his office is kind of upstairs on the second floor in this beautiful but dark cottage. And all of a sudden, he kind of bursts through and makes this entrance. And he takes me in. And he says, from your prose, I would have thought you were a fat man. And I was like, I don't even... I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and then he kind of tested me. Like it was like, in order to go upstairs, it was a bit of a video game. We just kind of talked and he wanted to know what I was about. And then we're sitting there having these conversations and he and his wife kept peacocks. And there's this huge, pretty big window in his office. And you'd be midway in a conversation. It's like, these peacocks like coming up to the window and yelling at us and it's such a strange experience yeah. wow yeah so it was a pretty cool experience and then you know we did a couple years later we did the bond festival and i directed for my mfa i directed the bundle but he came and he saw it hilariously wow. he flew in so that was amazing and to talk with him and he said to me you know you really taught me something about basho he said Wow. When I wrote him, I thought he was such an asshole. And he was like, you showed me there was also something else. You know, it's, it was it was like, oh, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But, yeah. Did I let him off the hook? But it was, no, it was wonderful. He loved it. And he talked to me. He still, you know, talked about it for long wow. after. Yeah. Edward Bond is a sweetie. Who knew? My name is Drew Hayden Taylor, and I am a uh, Anishinaabe playwright, or as I like to call myself, a contemporary storyteller. I was up in Alaska, of all places. I was um, at the Edward Albee Prince William Sound um, Theater Festival. And the year I was there, Arthur Miller was there. Oh, wow. And... Um, yeah, and it was it was fascinating because uh, he's he's very tall, right? Mm -hmm. And he's walking down the hallways, and he has his wife, um, not Marilyn. Uh, he he uh, his his wife at that time. This was about ten years ago. Was a fairly well known, I think, photographer. 
So at the, at the university, it was quite funny because a lot of the students there take photography and they were, a lot of them were more uh, enamored by her than him. And so he was actually up there to do some salmon fishing. This was just a side, an excuse for him to come up. His biography had just come out. I think it was called Timelines or something like that, or I forget what it was, but it was out. Right. So he was there, and I remember he. Uh, I bought a copy of his uh, his biography, his autobiography, and a whole bunch of people did, and everybody was standing around uh, waiting for him to sign it. And I heard this young guy come up, and he introduced himself. He was a student in um, directing. He was in the final year of directing at the at the University of Alaska, and for his final dissertation, he was directing a production of um, Death of a Salesman. And so as Arthur Miller is signing his book, the student says, I've read the book like four or five times. And, you know, I can't seem to find out what it is Willie Loman actually sells. And I've gone through, I've tried to research it. I can't find out what he sells. And it would really help me in my directing if you could tell me, what, what does he sell? And I'm sitting there and I'm just like going like, (laughs) and i'm waiting to find out what arthur miller's comment is going to be and god bless him he just smiled handed the guy's book back and said well that's the question isn't it and just walked away and i thought this is his final year directing and that's the question he asks arthur miller (laughs) (laughs) ah to be young and stupid again yeah no kidding and that man now runs (laughs) Yes, that's right. And he's still trying to figure out what he sells. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the show. Today you heard from Drew Hayden Taylor, Eric McCormack, Alan Dilworth, and Ted Dykstra. We will have bonus material with stories we couldn't fit into today's episode available to listen to in the upcoming days. Please subscribe to our show if you're enjoying it. Just One More is produced expertly by Kevin Sexton, and music is provided by Deb Sinha. Thanks very much for listening.